Hello again, I'm Miriam Felton. Welcome to Yarn Stories Podcast. Welcome back, lovely people. As of the original air date for this episode, I'm in the middle of hosting a gift along on Instagram and Facebook. I've got discount codes for gift-worthy accessories, and I'll be doing a bunch of prize drawings for those participating. All you've got to do is tag me in your gift-making photos and use the hashtag giftalong2018. It doesn't have to be knitting. If you're making cookies as a gift, if you're crocheting or weaving or anything at all, any kind of making is fair game. So come join in on the fun and maybe get some prizes for yourself out of the bargain. So as a reminder, this is part two of the interview with Sally Fox. Last week, we talked about Sally's formative years with fiber and her first job working with soil microculture and how it led to her finding naturally colored cotton in a forgotten corner of the greenhouse. She went through many iterations of her farm, but had to keep moving because her naturally colored cotton couldn't be within a certain region when a cotton monoculture came into the area. So she landed in Yolo County, California, and acquired many more naturally colored merino sheep than she had intended. And then they started giving birth. So let's pick up where we left off. So I was very bitter when the whole made, you know, I almost built the cotton up to being a force in sustainable textiles. Yeah. It was almost there in the 90s, and we were producing thousands of acres for mills all over the world. Mm -hmm. And then the textile industry went into free fall, and the only market for my cotton that remained was one mill in Japan, and and people who buy yarn from me still through my mail order company named Versys. Yeah, um, my sister actually used to buy cones of cotton directly from you. Yeah, she was making cotton kitchen goods, crocheted cotton kitchen goods. She used to buy yarn directly from you. Oh, what was the name? Sarah Natividad. Oh, I'll, I'll look her up. I have yeah. my, all my old files. See? Yeah, that's how I was first introduced <laughs> to your stuff and, and the cotton oh. reading in the 90s. So In the 90s, yep. see? And so I thought I was part of the group saving the world, right? Yeah. And then the whole thing collapsed. And yeah. textiles went into free fall. Everything went into bizarre weird colors and nothing natural right and yeah organic cotton survived but just dyed organic cotton not naturally colored and so in my sort of frustration about okay i can't save the whole world i kind of made this okay well then i'll sequester carbon here on my farm i kind of made it like you know a na 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 -na thing like (laughs) okay you you guys don't want me to do anything big. I'll do something right here then. And so then I... Science break. Let's talk about carbon sequestration. We all know about the greenhouse effect and extra CO2 produced by manufacturing and burning of fossil fuels are leading to global climate change. So the idea behind carbon sequestration is that if we can pull some of the CO2 out of the atmosphere in conjunction with using more renewable energy, that we can slow down the global climate change. 
So there's a bunch of ways to, to pull that carbon out of the atmosphere. You can plant trees. They store CO2. And you can turn the CO2 into liquid by pressurizing it and injecting it into porous rock layers under the earth. There's a bunch of different ways that you can do this. <laughs> but the way that Sally's doing it is in soil sequestration. So the largest biologically available concentration of carbon on the planet is in the soil. It's made by decomposing things like leaf litter in the forests and natural uh, dieback of grasslands, that kind of thing. So it's a really fantastic natural resource that we use every day with the food that we grow. This is called humus, this carbon in the soil. It's that dark, rich part of the soil. So plants absorb CO2, build themselves up you know, by growing, and then they respire or breathe out oxygen and CO2 back into the atmosphere. But they keep a lot of carbon in them. Then when they die, they fall back to the soil. Soil microbes and tiny creatures break them apart and they put the carbon back into the soil. So traditional agriculture, fertilization, and frequent tilling release a lot of this soil carbon into the air because it speeds up the decomposition and disturbs the soil biome. So all those things in the ground that eat the plant life and turn it into carbon are disturbed when you till the soil. So by changing the way that she does the harvests and by being more careful with the soil, Sally is keeping carbon in the soil on her farm. So because of the sheer amount of carbon that's held in the soil, better land management practices leading to 6 to 7% more carbon being held in the soil could actually offset the increase of fossil fuel use. Also of note, keeping that carbon in the soil actually leads to better water retention in the soil, higher crop production, and better soil decom decomposer diversity. I did this whole, like, how can I sequester the most carbon on this land yeah. biodynamically mm -hmm. and keep my breeding program going? Yeah. And, you know, so I, this has been my puzzle I've been working on on this farm. Yeah. And the thing that I haven't had very much of is, are, uh, is influx of capital or money because yeah. it's very hand-to-mouthy and yeah. it's not been financially sustainable, but... Yeah. I have sequestered a huge amount of carbon, and I've learned so much. And I've stayed with my principles about the animals. I've yeah. continually worked with how to have the animals have their lives really matter and be respectful and, hum and truly humane, not yeah. just sort of humane by some standards. Yeah, not, not lip service humane, actually humane. Yes. Actually, yeah. yeah, like, you know, the, what f what free range means when you buy eggs, you know, it's generally bullshit. It's like, exactly. oh, they have, you know, like they have a 18, 18 inch square that they can wander around in. That's, right. you know, exactly. that's not no, really this free is range. like real, like, like yeah. the shearer, I pay the shearer. So normal people who have flocks my yep. size pay $2.50 a sheep to be sheared. Mm -hmm. And the shearer goes fast. And yeah. a lot of them get cut, especially on merinos, because yep. they're very, very big. No, I pay this guy seven fifty a sheep, and he's yeah. slow and careful. And yep. I pay a crew of people to be there to support and make sure it goes calmly, yep. and nobody keep gets the hurt. Sheep, and you know, chill, keep yeah everything yes. clean, keep everything. Yeah. Yes, and 
so so well and there's it, also so the some, aspect when you're shearing of having different colored sheep that like you know you've got to keep you can't it's not all going into one pool to be mixed together you're probably keeping at least yes. the colors separate and yes. quite possibly even the sheep separate so like you know completely yes. sweeping the shearing floor before you bag up yes you know you got each it sheep. exactly yeah. every floor every it's swept yep. so there's this crew of five four to five people helping this yeah. shearer each one of these people i'm paying yeah so so but you're doing it right I'm doing it right, and these sheep have a good life. I pay to cat. I had paid the vet to castrate the sheep yep. with anesthesia. Now, who does yes, this? Right. I even nobody does the, that. The, the hand, the the humane standards are like they came out to do a thing once for me, and then they go, "Well, we don't even have this as an option, right?" Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> nobody, nobody puts their sheep under anesthesia to castrate the males. Not gonna happen. They just like rubber band them and snip it off, and they're done. Like. <laughs> So, see, this is why it's not financially sustainable. But the trouble is, I go to myself, like, look, this is my life, and what do I want? Like, okay, I don't have the big house. I'm out. I did get a single-wide manufactured home. I upgraded from the travel trailer. (laughs) But but what is it that I want? What I want is this, is to say that I to feel like I really tried to do this, right? And that I figured it out. You know, to have work that matters. Even if yeah. it only matters to, you know, a small group of people, it should really matter to them. And that's, like, honestly, in our creative work, I feel like that's really all we, <laughs> we want to ask for, you know? know? To feel fulfilled in what we do and to have our work matter to someone else. Right. And, you know, when you look at, when I look at the people that have 10 and 20 sheep, yeah. They take care of their sheep like yeah. I take care of they my do. hundreds. Yep. When, but the people who have hundreds and thousands of sheep, they, they don't do these things yeah. like I do. But, but the people who have five sheep, and that's how they are. They're very close to their yeah. animals. And they're, and they're the ones so, who sell fleeces to hand spinners. And, yeah. and, so you're and raising we, them like a hobby flock. I am, even though it's, it's, it's so substantially larger than a hobby flock. Yes, I know, and I haven't graduated into it being like a more of a business, and I and I and I have to make a choice here about how I proceed. Yeah, I don't well, I know, know what the future will be. Well, and it's a weird. It's you know how much is important to you versus how much is important for your customers versus like it's a weird balancing act. Yeah, that I think that you know having having more awareness of what you're doing because like you know I didn't know that you raised sheep until like. Uh, a year and a half ago Mm. you know if you get people who appreciate what you're doing more Uh awareness should help help with that I hope well I hope so too and I and I don't know you know I don't know how it will all go I had this huge fire you know happen and it really was it's totally terrifying and I'm not over it I'm no there you shouldn't be yeah 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 something so but anyway let's go back to your questions that you're asking so um i like i like the organic nature of a conversation we're good so uh your farm is organically certified can you explain to us why it's important to raise cotton organically well for me i the biggest reason i think it's important is for people who live in agricultural areas it's I don't believe there's much of a residue on cotton from the okay. pesticides or yeah, like from the finished from the, fabric. The, you mean? Right. I don't yeah. think that the, when you're sewing with fabric that it would have no. residues 
No, I really it's been washed enough time that I don't think anything's on there. There but. are people that are chemically sensitive, and they do buy oh, from yeah. me, and, they, and for them it's an issue. But I think for yeah. most people with healthy systems, it's not yeah, an issue. it's not an issue. But for me, the whole big thing for organic cotton was about reducing pesticides at yeah. the farm level. Because yeah. cotton is a big, um, modern cotton yeah. is heavily dependent and has bred to be heavily dependent upon yeah. chemical inputs. And yeah. it's when you live in these farming areas and your air is so full of defoliants or so yeah. full of um, various and sundry pesticides that it's the, it's the people who live in these rural areas that mm-hmm. suffer. Yeah. So that was you my know, like reason. Our regular, you know, the... the whatever you know level of pesticides that we may or may not be getting from touching our cotton clothes you know is minimal Mm -hmm. compared to the people who are living in places where cotton is being bred because there has a it has a huge huge pesticide load commercial cotton so so like it's it's running off into the water systems it's in the air it's in the soil that their you know local food is being grown in later you know it's it's everywhere it's pervasive Right. For people it, who live near it. And cotton seed is a major um, food for dairy cattle. And oh, so, I didn't know that. So with, with, yeah, so, so it's carrying that over to the meat supply chain. Well, the, the milk supply. Yeah. Meat, oh, okay. Meat, dairy cattle, meat, not meat care. Got yeah, it. not cattle. The cattle that are producing meat don't eat cotton seed. It's the yeah, dairy they, cows that eat the seed because the seed brings the butterfat milk up level way oh. up high. It's okay. so, so nutritious. Yeah. And, um, and so it was kind of an interesting thing that back in the 90s, you know, when we start, really started, my first organic certification was the farm in Kern County in 1990. I got that mm-hmm. farm certified. And the seed, that was my biggest insight, was that it, organic cotton actually really helped get organic dairies going. That's awesome. Because, because you could this, feed them organic waste. Yes. Organic farm waste. Yes. That's great. Right. And they don't consider it waste at all. It's actually the main product of the land. So um, from an acre of of cotton, you might get 2,000 pounds of seeds and 1,000 pounds of lint. Yeah, it's the primary whatever. Product. Yeah, product. Thank you. And and so, so actually the primary product of the organic cotton farm are the seeds that go to the dairies, which is a very important food stuff for organic dairies. And that's yeah. what helped get organic dairies going was organic cotton. That's really and, interesting. And the sort of ready supply of organic cotton seeds made a big difference for them. Yeah. So are you, are you um, feeding any dairy cattle with your cotton seed waste? Or you don't have cotton seed waste because you you keep replanting, right? I can't have, I have already overstretched. See, I don't have employees or anything. Yeah. This is ridiculous that I'm even (laughs) farming this many acres. That's why I'm telling you, I don't know how long this is going to go on. I'm I'm 62 and I'm pretty, um, in pretty good health for 62, but this is way too much for one person. Yeah. Anyway, let alone someone old. So anybody out there who wants to buy a whole operation (laughs) or apprentice, like seriously, if you want to do this, talk to Sally, hit me up, I'll hook you up. Like, (laughs) (laughs) There we go. Yeah, my dream would be someone who wants to support my work buying a portion of the farm and and then being um, part of the... for, um, providing some financial stability. 
Yeah. Because yeah. this is too much that I've had to do all this by myself. The other yeah. the other thing I really need to do but haven't had the funds to do is set up a nonprofit. Every time yes. I go to set up a nonprofit, there are all these people that tell me, oh, you can do it yourself. It's really easy. And then I sit down, try to do it, and it's not so easy. I'm sorry. It really isn't. No. It's not with all the other things I'm doing. It doesn't strike me as so easy. Yeah. And and then when I talk to lawyers, they all want $4,500 to do the paperwork, and yeah. I never have the $4,500. No. Okay, so I'm working with Sally to get her set up with a Kickstarter or a GoFundMe to raise the funds to set her up as a nonprofit. After talking with her about all of the options, it seems like setting up a nonprofit is the best way to keep her work going. But we're both quite busy, so it didn't get set up in time for the release of this episode. But watch the space. I'll be telling you guys about it as soon as it's up. A lot of people keep calling me a farmer, and I say, no, I'm a breeder. Because yes. a breeder wants their plants to have adverse situations yeah. from which they can watch yeah. which and plants it, can handle this, yep. which plants can grow past this, yeah. um, which plants can thrive even though nothing seems right. Because yeah. those are the plants that you want. Yeah, because, you know, it's not it's not going to result in, you know, a whole, like, monoculture failure. You know, you right. like, if a fire burns through, like, the seeds that pop back up after the fire, you're like, those ones, those are the ones that I'm breeding. Right. That's yeah. the feeling. And so a breeder is not giving their plants yeah. everything optimal. But a farmer does give their plants yeah. everything optimal. Yeah. And so for me to shift from a breeder to a farmer hasn't worked very well because I have the breeder mentality and I'm always curious how are these things doing when they actually have to face real life and that is not a way to make money no and that's one of the reasons that I feel like in the long run if I set up a nonprofit and the I don't have to own this whole business of the farm was because that's what I had and that's what I traded to get here and I've kept it going and I made it my thing that I was going to sequester carbon and you know so I did it I already sequestered all this carbon I've done all this stuff I figured this out now it's time for me to step back and have a less um um uh, have a a life that's less strenuous and less stressful yeah and yeah, you're getting on, close to retirement age, and it would be really nice to actually have something, you know, some form of retirement, whatever yes. form works for you. <laughs> yes, I'd like to be designing the yarns and producing them for my yeah. beloved customers. Yeah. I'd like to be continuing the breeding work and training young people in my system. Yeah. And I want to, um, I feel like um, that's where the nonprofit comes in, because then all these people around the world could It becomes start. educational instead of being... You yes. know, being, like, monetary-driven. And the trouble is, naturally colored cotton is not going to be uh, taken seriously in the world marketplace until the colors don't wash out on people. Yeah. Yeah. And since they won't come to me and just buy from me, like, like I right? tell you, there is misogyny here. They will not yeah. believe that I've done something they couldn't figure out themselves. Yeah. Um, so if it was something like, a, you know, how universities breed, lines Mm -hmm. and then they license them out to people well it would be the same thing and it would be therefore they would start with material that wasn't going to wash out the color wasn't going to wash out and then they would bring them to their areas pardon yeah the work could continue yes and that's what i want without all being on you right that's what i want and it's it's inappropriate that all this is still on me yeah so you uh 
you've got this wonderful farm and everything seems to be working very synergistically and you seem to have a very close connection to your animals and your plants. Yeah. So my second season question seems very apropos. (laughs) (laughs) If you could be reincarnated as any animal, what animal would you be? I would, I think I would come back as a dragonfly. Nice. I love dragonflies. I know. I love them too. And they spend their youth in in waterways cleaning up water. Yeah, of, eating all they the clean bugs up all the pests. Yep. <laughs> Getting rid of mosquitoes and things. Mm, thank God. <laughs> yeah. And then in their adult life they're going around your fields zooming and cleaning up pests. So like they're these like they're doing what I want to do. <laughs> yeah. That's perfect. Oh, thanks, Sally. It's been great talking to you. It's really been nice talking to you. Thank you. Now we're going to talk with Joan Ruane about spinning cotton. Joan is a spinner and teacher specializing in cellulose fibers, especially cotton. She lives in Tucson, Arizona. Hi, Joan. Good morning. So you're going to tell us today a little bit about spinning cotton. Yes. Yes, I'd be happy to. Anytime anybody will listen to me about spinning cotton, I just <laughs> love to go on and on. And uh, in fact, I have to have them say, stop, stop. <laughs> it's <laughs> the fiber proselytization that we all do. <laughs> oh, yes. You know, we want to addict everybody into this habit, you mm-hmm. know, and get them addicted. And um, it was so many years that cotton had a bad name. It was saying, oh, cotton is hard to spin when you picked up any of the books that were being written. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's because many, many years ago when the people could could not go out and buy yarn in the stores, they had to spin it themselves. Mm -hmm. And they were spinning all of the cellulose fibers as well as the, the as well as protein fibers. And our wheels were built so that we could spin it. But then, of course, life changed and yarn started to be manufactured, come into the shops. And so the people threw their spinning wheels up in the attic or into (laughs) the fireplace and said, hooray, we can buy the yarn. And at that point, there was so many... there were so many people not spinning. And then, really, when the hippie age came along, you know, that, that early 50s and 60s there? Yeah, the sort um, of back and to there was a re- Yes, there was a rebirth of, of spinning and getting and doing things. And so the only fiber that was really handy all over the United States was wool. Everybody could grow and have a sheep, and there were sheep all over the place. And so the spinning wheels were built for protein fiber, the long fiber. And so a ratio was like six to one. And you understand what ratio is? Yep. Um, let's right. let's explain. So I know <laughs> I'm a spinner. Um, right. Some of our some of our listening listenership is new to spinning or not a spinner at all. So let's let's uh, explain. All right. So it's about the the circumference of the bobbin being spun where that takes up the fiber compared to the wheel. So uh, the ratio um, basically tells you how fast the bobbin will spin. 
That's right. And what happens is we we have um, the wheel goes around once. Mm-hmm. There's a flyer on yep. um, outside the bobbin, and that goes around so many times. Yeah. So as you can see, if the diameter of the whirl is tiny yeah. and the wheel is big, then it's going to make that flyer go around faster. Yep. And so what had happened for many years is when spinning started to come in, the ratio was so low. Yeah. And it was great with long staple yeah, fiber. Yeah, totally fine for wool. Na- so, yes, so the problem was, was sure. Yeah, so the mm-hmm. problem was not that that the, you know, that you couldn't spin cotton, it's that you couldn't spin cotton with the tools that were available. That's right. Got that's it. right. You could spin it. But it was just what frustrating. Was <laughs> you it was frustrating. You had to treadle and treadle and treadle. Yeah. And treadle even, for your life. Even the Mm-hmm. And even most of the spindles that were were available for us at the time were spindles that were much heavier, yeah. and and they t- they would not spin as fast. Where today we have those little tiny Tockley we call them Tockley spindles, mm-hmm. and they're very lightweight, and we support them in a dish, yes. and they spin so fast. In fact, they spin faster than the spinning wheels. Yeah. So uh, uh, let's them. talk for a second about um, about spinning on a drop spindle. So when you're spinning on a drop spindle, the weight of the spindle itself, um, like the, the yarn that you're spinning needs to support the weight of the spindle itself. Okay. And so, right, so you would need to be thicker and that would be mm-hmm. frustrating with cotton. Yes, and and so we don't usually, majority of the time, we are not using a drop spindle, yes. we're using a, a support supported spindle. spindle. Because the cotton that we're using today um, for most of our spinning is called sliver. It has Mm -hmm. been carded on a drum carder and then put into a little strip. And it's all lined up so it slips very easily and quick. So Mm -hmm. if it's a drop spindle and and there's any weight to it, it just pulls the fiber apart. So we set the, the little... So we use a lightweight spindle, we put it in a dish mm-hmm. and have it supported in a dish or something yeah, or so on that a the board or whatever. Yeah, so the weight doesn't pull on the thread. <clears throat> That's right. You have and more then control. we draft, draft out from that. Yeah. So that is the kind of change. Now, now let, let, let me t- also mention, though, in India, they make what they call punis. Yes. And that is when they take the cotton and they wrap it very, very tight. And, and it's, it's done commercially, and it's so tight that you can then use the spindle as a drop spindle yes. because the fiber is, um, does not release itself easily, and yeah. it's, it's more as a roving type of thing. Yeah, and these are so like, it, they're like little rollags for, for wool spinners. Yeah. They're, um, right. yeah, they're just, t- you know, they're, they're a, like a carded fiber, and then they're rolled um, with the grain of the fiber, so like against it, so that mm-hmm. the fibers mm-hmm. are are going round and round and round the little tube, mm-hmm. rather than being mm-hmm. like lengthwise lined up. That's right. That's so right. yeah, they'd have That's more friction. They would hold each other, uh, hold the hold each, the other fibers better because of the way that they're mm-hmm. aligned. Mm-hmm. And that's why the boys in in India 
back when Gandhi was having them spin in the schools and all the boys had to learn to spin, they had the ponies. And so they could walk around the schoolyard and And using those ponies as a dress spindle. That makes sense. But life changes, and what we have now is that handy is is the nice, smooth sliver. Yeah, and supported spindles. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Awesome. That's right. Then we get into a spinning wheel, yeah. and then, then our manufacturers of spinning wheels have woken up and realized <laughs> that they need to have something different for us. Yeah. And 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 there is there are wheels that my Lindrum wheel. Um, I have a very fast flyer that can go forty four to one. Nice. That means that when the wheel goes around once, my flyer is going around forty four times. Yeah. Don't get your finger caught in that. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, as I tell my students. You know, that's not necessary, that speed, unless you are going to be a professional at it and need to produce a huge amount. It takes the fun out of spinning when you start doing it that fast. You have to be on your toes and watching and making sure. So I like, for instance, I use basically my 17 to 1 ratio. Mm -hmm. And that way I can relax, enjoy, and draft back and not have to do a lot of fast treadling or anything. I can keep it at a nice, even pace. I do recommend um, first preference, of course, definitely that it is a flyer-driven wheel. That means that the flyer does the twisting, um, and it's going around, where there are some wheels that are are bobbin-driven, and that means that to get the flyer to go around, it takes that yarn that you are spinning that needs to pull that big flyer around. Mm-hmm. And so it's the um, it's not as efficient. It is yeah. it can be done. Don't get me wrong. It can yeah, yeah. be done. And I have some friends that that still uses their bobbin driven one. Um, but it, it's, you, it's a little more work and it's yeah. a little harder to do. So, um, that's number one. And number two is I do really like the Scotch tension mm-hmm. on, on it because I have two places to, to tension. I can yeah. put my you can do more belt as loose, mm-hmm, as loose as possible. And then I can play with just the draw in of how fast or how slow I want my yarn to be drawn in. Yeah. And of course, with cotton, one of the major things is that you want very little uh, on the break. It wants yeah. the, the it just almost you don't, you don't want your, over. Yeah, you don't want your wheel pulling the yarn in. You want to be able to you're, feed it as as you feel it's done, rather than it having lots of tension on the yarn while you're spinning it. That's correct. So. The reason why you need a higher ratio and more twists per inch with cotton, is it because of the short staple fiber or staple length, right? Oh, oh yes. Yes, that's correct. So yeah, what's the staple length in, you know, in comparison to wool? What's it like? Well, usually the staple length of most cotton that I'm spinning and, and that is available to us is just a little over an inch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, compared to fleeces, that's 
pretty short. <laughs> but what is, is misunderstood is that people think there's no crimp in cotton, and there is. Mm -hmm. There is actually, when cotton grows, what happens is each one of those little fibers is filled with a cellulose, mm -hmm. and it's like a straw. And when it opens in the sun, you know, out in the sun, then that little, like, paper straw is filled with a fluid. The fluid comes out of it. Yeah. And what happens, it, it crumples, just like a straw would uh -huh. crumple. Okay. And so there is crimp in the yeah. fiber. Well, otherwise it would just slide right past and it wouldn't, it wouldn't you know, uh, catch its neighbors, its neighboring fibers as you, as you were trying right. to spin it. That's but this is what happens if it's going to an electric spinning gen, mm -hmm. you know, commercially, yeah. they have to take all that crimp out of that cotton. Oh. So it goes through several processes before it can go to the spinning gen. Yeah, and it strips and, the crimp. And it strips it just straight as an arrow. Huh. So what does that mean? As you as a spinner, you know that if you don't have any crimp in it, you have to spin it so tight mm -hmm. to have it hold, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's why when you buy most commercial yarns, cotton yarns, you'll find they're hard, aren't they? Yeah, woman, you're blowing my mind. Because, like, I don't really enjoy knitting with cotton um, because I've only ever knit with commercial cotton. I should try spinning some cotton and see if, if you know, I like the... I like knitting with it then just because I'd get I'd get a less hard yarn I'd get a loftier bouncier yarn yes you would there is <sighs> actually spring to the yarn and it's That's soft awesome. and it's it's lovely to work with I think it really stood out when I was teaching in New Zealand where they don't grow cotton mm -hmm. and I was over there and when I pulled out my hand spun cotton skeins of yarn I mean, you should have seen their eyes. They just, they got so big. <laughs> they kept saying, but this is soft. This is wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, you know, then there's, on top of all that, there's, like, mercerized cotton is a thing and that, you know, oh, yeah. everybody sells because it's shiny. But, like, it's just horrible on my hands. I don't really, you know, I don't enjoy working with it if yeah. I can get away with it. But that's, mm -hmm. that's really making me rethink spinning cotton now. Yes. Yes. And we're so fortunate. It, it started with people like Sally Fox. And, yep. Who, who um, is the interview at the beginning of this episode. Oh, yeah. She was, she was just fabulous. And I yeah. mean, of course, we have to thank her for the colored cotton that we, yes. natural colored cotton we have, because, I mean, she, I mean, she yeah, it's really her. It's worked all her. hard. Mm -hmm. And she also understood that there was crimp in it. And so yep. the cotton she was selling at the time, is is all it does is she has it carded and it is yeah. not what I call tortured anymore and taking yeah. the crimp. So yeah, there she's are, just aligned the fibers is all. That's correct. And then um, I had a dear friend that was up in uh, Colorado and area, and she was um, she found a processor who would card it for her and uh, Kay Fielding. And uh, Kay, uh, Kay was having some good success with a carding company that was just carding it for her. And then because it was just a little company, um, you know, one man um, thing, and it, it no longer was able 
he was able to do it for her. And then I finally was able to find somebody that is professionally doing it. And it's just going through the drum carter. And we called it easy to to spin cotton because it is easy to spin. Yeah. Well, less processed in cotton mm -hmm. means easier to spin. (laughs) Yes. And we are really working hard to get it into the shops and trying to educate people about there is a difference, a big, yeah. big difference between easy to spin cotton and cotton that is going to the electric spinning gym that all the, yeah. the crimp is taken out. That's right. Interesting. Another tool that we need, I'd like to talk a little bit about yeah, is there are two, there are carters for carding. Yeah. And there, there is the wool carters, which almost everybody knows about. Mm-hmm. But the teeth are, are are heavier, stronger, and they don't they're not quite as flexible, and they're yeah. set further apart, and they're they're yeah. they're heavier geared because the fiber is heavier, it's, and it, the fiber is you know, bigger. Yeah, yes, it's bigger, yes. it's longer, it's all those things. So you need mm-hmm. and so the carters are, are apart. Mm-hmm, the carters are quite wide, but a cotton carter is narrower. And it's longer in width. Yeah, that makes sense. And and the teeth are set much closer. Mm-hmm. They are not as as heavy of a tooth, and okay. they have a little more flexibility to them. Okay, so that but, they're less likely to break the fibers. That's right, and and it, it, it there is a huge difference between the two. Mm-hmm. But when I teach. I do say to people, that's up to you. If you're going to do a lot of cotton spinning and you want it to be fairly smooth and fine and yeah, not a lot of texture in it, then you yeah. do, it, it's best to invest in a cotton carters. That makes but sense. But if you want to have textured yarn and you, your cotton textured and a little more lumps and bumps, which is what you pay more for in the shops when you go yeah. buy yarns you, for textured yarns. You pay more for it. And then, use your, then use your wool cards. Just make sure they're nice and clean. You've gotten yeah. all the wool out of them. And uh, go ahead and, and spin on them. And the important part about it is, is, though, is don't bear down hard. Just pet it like you would a cat. Nice kitty. Yeah. And let the, those, those cotton fibers float on the top. Don't put any pressure on them. Okay. And, uh, but, uh, but, you know, there is sort of a false thing. It's like, oh, if I'm going to spin cotton, I have to buy a pair of cotton carters. No, um, you really don't. If you really yeah, want so smooth it, cotton and yeah. really, really smooth, then, you, you know, there is available fiber for you. Yeah. But so so it's up to you. Um, cotton carters can be used for other things besides cotton. Uh, cotton yeah, carters is great. For, mm-hmm. So so um, all the equipment that you would that you would have. So you know maybe a supported spindle or like a higher ratio flyer for your wheel or you know any of those things. There they would be also useful for other cellulose fibers, right? Yeah. Yes, especially your down fibers. Yeah. Yeah, your down okay. fibers need to be treated almost the same as cotton. Like uh, when you say down fibers, you mean like uh, like yak or, or camel uh, down, like bison. Like, yeah, camel down. Um, the really mm-hmm. short, fine undercoats of things. Yes. So not yes. necessarily even other cellulose fibers. These are protein fibers, but that have more in common stable length and fineness wise uh, with with cotton than they do with wool. 
Yes, I have a dear friend who has Angora bunny rabbits. And, oh, yeah. Uh, and she loves her cotton carters. Yeah. That makes sense. Well, because like with a wool card, there's not enough control over over all those tiny fibers. They would get everywhere if you were trying to do Angora on regular wool cards. Mm-hmm. They would like, like you'd lose a lot. There would be a lot in the air floating around. <laughs> yeah. It would be a big mess. Okay. That makes sense. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so what other, do you, are there any other cellulose fibers that you like to spin in a blend with cotton? Or do you just um, generally spin cotton by itself? Well, I find it, but basically, I, I love spinning cotton by itself. But I yeah. have recently been able to get a hold of some hemp that it, mm-hmm. it's the, the it's hemp that has been uh, left over. It's like a flax toe. Uh, are oh, you okay. familiar with a toe? Yes, flax? I am. Um, describe it though. <laughs> For, well, for listeners. see, what happens is uh, whether it's flax or it's hemp, it's a huge, long fiber that grows mm-hmm. in the stem, but yeah. they have to card it. And the waste from the, that long straight is usually called toe. It's and fluffy. I have recently been able to get a hold of de- what they call it decombed hemp. And um, and what it is is basically the toe, uh, the leftover from the long fiber, and yeah. so it's short. In fact, it's shorter than cotton. Oh, that's And perfect, I have been able to. I've been blending that with the cotton. Yeah. Um, I I I love silk, so I yeah. love silk noil. Um, I oh, blend yeah. with it. Well, and that um, would, that would work better because silk. You know, silk, if it's done a particular way, can be one continuous thread from an entire cocoon. So, like, you'd have to chop it. When, you, when you're doing, when you're, like, blending it with um, with a wool, you cut it to about the same staple length. So the silk noil would have a small enough uh, staple length that's kind of little fluffy bits of silk that they would blend really well with the cotton without you having to, like, chop it or sacrifice any length. Well, it's just kind of against my grain to to chop things up. That's fair. So oftentimes <laughs> what I do is I will spin my silk separate and then mm-hmm. ply it with cotton. Ah, okay. Well, and it would give the cotton a lot of strength as well, even if you did something like light and fluffy with, uh, you know, with it, with the cotton ply. And then... Yeah, well- Mm-hmm. The silk would give it a lot of structure. Well, just to give you an example, let's let's take and we, we're going to card lint. Now, are you familiar when I say lint and sliver, what the difference is? Uh, explain it. Well, lint, uh, cotton lint, is what comes when they, they have yeah. taken the cotton from the field to the gins. And at yeah. the gin, the only thing that's done is a lot of the, the waste is blown out and mm-hmm. the seeds are removed. Yeah. But then it's compacted into a bale so tight. It is, there's 480 pounds in a bale. And a yeah. bale isn't that huge. So you know how much compression. So then, yeah. so then that we take that and it, it has to be then it because it has been pushed together so yeah. so that is that's our lint and okay. that that is when you when you card lint you can never get as smooth a yarn as you get when it has sliver it's com- commercially carded yeah. sliver you get a smooth long yeah, and yeah. you can't get the same effect with sliver as you can with with lint. And lint so, is 
Mm-hmm. It's it's in the it like to contrast it with the wool world. Would it be like like uh, roving versus top? So like combed top. Not even roving. It's not even like because it hasn't been carded. It would be like a, a fleece. <laughs> and then okay, if you got could, it. So like comparing a fleece to the to to combed top. Yeah, that's yeah, a very yeah. very stark difference. Yeah. Okay. That's right. And yet they, and they each have their purpose. So yeah. if you card lint. Mm-hmm. which hasn't had any, you know, carding process yeah. done to it. And you can card it. And you don't card it way too much. And you get a little bit of texture. And then you apply that silk fine thread oh, with yes. that. Just imagine what it is like. I bet it's beautiful. It's just wonderful. And, and what I have been doing in the last few years, because I had loved Sally's natural colors and i got so many clothes in brown green and white and i finally have said oh god i gotta you know i gotta put some color in here so i have been dyeing my lint and then carding it oh nice and so i am getting a heathered yarn that's awesome if you stop and think about it you can go into stores and buy heathered wool yarn Mm -hmm. but you can't buy any heathered cotton you're right yeah so this is what I've been teaching a lot of, and I bring it with me. And I've been, in fact, Arizona, I've been solar dyeing my lint. Oh, that's fun. Are you oh, doing uh, like natural dyes or are you doing like uh, fiber reactive dyes? What's, what are you using? Actually, I'm using Cushing dyes. Oh, okay. Cushing, Cushing now has, they used to combine it together and call it a union dye, and it came in a little brown envelope. You may have remembered that. Mm-hmm. And it had both the wool dye and the cellulose dye in awesome. it. Awesome, so that it, they could and, sell the same thing for both. But now they have separated it in nice Good. little white containers. Um, they sell it for, and you can do two, up to two pounds for what's in the container. And can you imagine you just have an array of colors and you can pick some of them, card them together. And, yeah, that sounds great. Uh, um, oh, my gosh, I'm coming up with some of the most beautiful, beautiful yarns. And I also have taken those pe- some of the people that don't like to card or say, oh, I'm never going to use carders. Uh, mm-hmm. We take and we paint the sliver. Mm-hmm. So we, uh, but they must remember that cotton, like wool, uh, sheep, they have a, it, the cotton has a protective coat on it, sort of a yeah. wax and oil on it. So it has to be scoured or washed good, bring to a yeah. simmer and take that off before the dye takes very well. So, yeah. Yeah. That was, yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. That, good. Well, thank you, yeah. Joan. All right. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you and, uh, and also hoping that I get the word out more because you know, it was Harry and all of Linda who actually restarted the cotton spinning uh, oh, that's in, great. with us people. Um, that was in the 60s, and um, they had a, a pickup truck, and what they did is to throw a bale of cotton in the back. They lived in Phoenix, Arizona, and mm-hmm. they traveled around and tried to show people that cotton was really easy to spend. This has been great. I've enjoyed my morning. You've picked me up because I've been able to talk about cotton. (laughs) Yay! Thanks, Joan. All right. You have a great day. You too. Thank you again. Bye-bye. Bye. You can check out Joan's site at cottonspinning.com. 
She has information and resources for spinning cotton, as well as her teaching schedule up there. Joan also recommends that if you're interested in spinning cotton, you can check out the Facebook group, Hey, It's All About Cotton. I just joined. They seem very welcoming. (laughs) Uh, I've got links up in the show notes for all of these resources. So speaking of our experts, our season one expert, Amy King, now has a Patreon. She's creating fiber arts classes, so you should go check it out at patreon.com slash spunky eclectic Amy. You can follow me in all of my making at Miriam Felton Knit Designs on Facebook and on Twitter or Instagram at MimKnits. That's M-I-M-K-N-I-T-S. And again, the address for the Patreon, if you want to join my Patreon and get some cool rewards and bonus content, is patreon.com slash Miriam Felton. Thank you to all of my patrons for supporting me every month. You can follow the podcast on social media via Facebook, search for Yarn Stories Podcast, with no space between yarn and stories, Twitter at Yarn Stories Pod, or Instagram at Yarn Stories Podcast. This podcast was produced in Salt Lake City, Utah, with production help from Sid Fallon. Music is by the ever-elusive Breakmaster Cylinder. Thank you for listening, and I will see you again in two weeks with an episode where we talk to Gabrielle Trainer about mindful making. Hey, babe. Hi. What you doing in the closet? <laughs>